Charter Podcast, Episode 9, Code Red for Humanity, Part 1, the IPCC's Sixth Assessment Report, with Dr. Donal Mullen of the School of Natural and Built Environment, hosted by me, Morris McCartney. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has just published the first volume of its Sixth Assessment Report, the volume on the physical science basis. Coming in at almost 4,000 pages and gathering together the results of some 14,000 scientific papers, it's been described as the most comprehensive look ever at the state of climate science. Happily, the working group that produced the report also produces a much shorter 42-page summary, though perhaps happily isn't the right word. It makes for pretty sobering reading. Here's how it starts. It is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere and biosphere have occurred. If that's the case then, climate change isn't some distant threat coming down the road towards us. It's already here. talk about all this, I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr. Donald Mullen, a senior lecturer in physical geography in the School of Natural and Built Environment and a specialist in climate change scenarios. So, hello, Donald. Good to have you here. Just, uh, we're going to get to the IPCC report in a minute, but if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about your work and your research. Yeah, no problem. Um, I I suppose, broadly speaking, I'm a climatologist, I would regard myself as, and sort of seen as the, the climate guy around uh, Queens and in the geography department here. I um, I work with all types of climate data, you know, both measured and observed climate records, but also modeled outputs from, um, you know, projected climate data. And specifically, I look at the impacts that climate change will have on various aspects of the environment and the economy, which can include anything from uh, peatlands, permafrost, soil erosion, um, and and um, winter road infrastructure I've looked at recently. And I've also started a project now on the impacts of climate change on sport as well, looking at issues like, for example, will it become too hot to safely host uh, tournaments like the World Cup and the Olympics in the future? So climate change really applies to, to everything in our lives. So um, you can you really can look at, at, at any of these aspects, which is I suppose what motivates me quite a lot to, to research in this area, it's, uh, it's very applied and very current. Um, and I also teach climate change at all levels in the curriculum, including the third year module I do on climate change, which is a very interesting one, especially when you engage with students on, on issues around climate change. I guess the, um, the new IPCC report has probably been something I've, that you're keenly interested in. and So I, I guess let's turn to, to talk about that. The, the first IPCC report was produced in 1990, so it's about 30 years ago. I guess in the intervening period, the technology, uh, the techniques and, and the sort of the data processing has all improved immensely. Um, would that be fair to say the modeling has, has improved a lot since then? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that we've come a long way with the science in, in 30 or so years, um, not just on the modeling, but as you mentioned, also on the observations and the measurements as well. Um, we Obviously, there are lots of, there are thousands of weather stations across the world and also buoys that record uh, ocean temperatures. Uh, so we, we've got loads of measurements that are all pulled together to form a, a global record. Um, 
And actually, this has improved a lot over the years as well because we've now digitized more, you know, uh, paper-based logbooks from manual weather stations to to make those available to have more and more uh, information in the observed network. And also, we're starting to look at things from above as well. So there's now satellite measurements of uh, temperatures and sea surface temperatures and, and rainfall. And when you add all this together, you get much improved global coverage. You know, you can now start seeing what the weather observations are like in places that you couldn't see it before. You know, data sparse locations like the Arctic and, and places like that. So that, that's improved a lot over the years. Um, and the modeling has also improved dramatically over the years, largely because of enhanced computing power during that time. These um, climate models, they run on massive supercomputers. And because of the way computing has, has uh, you know, advanced in those 30 years, we can now perform so many more millions of calculations on these supercomputers, which can account for far more complex uh, processes that are happening in the climate system. And this means that you basically get a better handle of what, uh, of, of how to project the climate and, and what it might do in the future. So those models have, have increased a lot in their capacity to, to do that. Also, the spatial resolution has increased a lot. So. In 1990, the spatial resolution was about 500 kilometers. What I mean by that is the outputs were produced for grid squares that um, that would be like 500 kilometers resolution. So that would mean that, for example, if you take uh, Britain and Ireland, we were kind of grouped as one blob just, and the projections for London, Dublin, Belfast were all the same, basically. Whereas nowadays, the spatial resolution is much finer it's less than 100 kilometers, which means that you can start to get far more regionally relevant detail. And, th and that's important for climate projections and to, to get a better handle on what the climate is likely to be in specific locations, not just a, on a big, broad regional basis like that. So, yeah, the technology's come a long way and um, we increasingly have more confidence in in the, the outputs that we're getting from this. And when you think of the climate models in particular, um, the, the climate models, we often think that they're only run for the future, but they're also run slightly into the past. And the reason for that is that you can then compare those projections in inverted commas for the past with uh, observations that you've got for the past as well. And when you do this, you get a, a near perfect agreement, really, that um, the models are capturing what the observed climate has done really well, but only when you account for anthropogenic factors, you know, human-induced factors. If you run the models with only natural factors, it, it, it doesn't match the observations at all, which is what we'd expect, of course. So it's fair to say that uh, the some of the doubts that some people had earlier on are now well and truly behind us, where we've, become, we've come to a, a much firmer and more uh, confident uh, assessment of the, the situation with uh, global warming. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there are multiple different research groups around the world, incidentally, that, that measure these things and that, that, you know, there's there's over 40 climate models globally that uh, groups that, that project different um, climate scenarios. And they do differ, you know, they do differ. And there are, there's different magnitudes uh, between these different modeling groups, but they're all going in the same direction. They're all going up. And uh, that's the that's the important point. It's just a matter of how much they're going up, and uh, you know some of the the skeptics and deniers would would point to the disagreement between models. But when everything's going in the one direction, 
and that those kind of uncertainties between the models are starting to close more and more over the years and all of that gives us more confidence in, in what we're projecting and I, th I think the other point to make is that we're now starting to see the projections in action aren't we i mean models were producing projections 30 40 years ago we're now starting to live through those projections we're starting to get observations that show us what what that future is now like and in, in many cases it's worse than than what was projected back then so i guess that's all the more reason then that that this report is probably quite uh, a matter of concern because uh, we're not looking like there's any realistic way of, of keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees centigrade above or Celsius above uh, pre-industrial levels. I mean, I guess some people might think uh, 1.5 doesn't sound like a lot. Um, could you maybe give us a, you know, an overview of why that's a big deal, why that's an important target to try to aim for? Yeah, certainly one one point five degrees. Yeah, it may, it may not seem like a lot, and in fact, um, there are there would be plenty of people in this part of the world that would welcome it. Probably, I think let's let's have an an extra one and a half degrees every summer. But actually, you know, it's 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 very much not not a good thing. And when we see the kind of extremes that have been happening across the world in recent months, in particular, when you think of the, you know, the floods in Germany there earlier in the summer, we've had heat waves in Greece. There's been so many other extremes happening. And all of these have become more likely because of climate change. In fact, a recent study was published that suggested that the floods in Germany were up to nine times more likely because of climate change. So what, what we're doing really is we're increasing the odds of experiencing more extreme weather. Um, you can never attribute one single weather event or natural disaster to climate change. That would be very foolish to do. It's not possible. There's too much natural variability going on. But what you can say with, with pretty near certainty is that by ratcheting up the temperature, for example, by one and a half degrees, we are, we're loading the dice as such. We're, we're increasing the possibility of rolling fives and sixes on the dice, and that gives us um, more chances of experiencing extreme weather, you know, more heat waves, but also uh, more intense rainfall as well. Like, a, you know, a warmer atmosphere, for example, holds more moisture than a colder one. So that intensifies the water cycle. It means you get more intense downpours, you get more storminess. And all of these are symptoms really of climate change. And these things we're all seeing much more of. And, and that's, uh, that's very dangerous. One and a half degrees is, is a particularly dangerous uh, threshold. And it, it's not plucked out of thin air, that particular target, whenever it was agreed at the, the Paris Agreement in 2016. Um, this has been carefully evaluated as a, as a temperature beyond which you start to experience more and more dangerous impacts of, of climate change. And the differences, for example, between one and a half and two degrees warming is pretty stark. The IPCC released a report three years ago uh, looking at the impacts of climate change at one and a half degrees and beyond. And we're able to show that the, you know, the, the worst impacts of climate change become quite a lot worse when you get to two degrees compared to when you're at 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, there are various different statistics on that that I can't remember, but everything becomes uh, worse effectively at those kind of levels. And um, I think the other thing to say about this, and it's an important point, is that 1.5 degrees is just the global average. Uh, it actually differs a lot in different parts of the world. So 
when we talk about one and a half degrees, that's a, a globally average temperature rise. But in places like the Arctic, for example, that's actually warming at about two to three times the global rate. So one and a half degrees in the Arctic can mean uh, between three and four degrees Celsius warming. And that, that's a, a much more dramatic uh, rise of temperature, which can lead to far more widespread impacts. So, um, so these kind of temperature rises, they, they matter a lot and they will um, create worse and worse impacts for us in the future. So like you mentioned, uh, you know, people might welcome a bit of warming here. Not so much in the Arctic, but also then obviously there are other regions of the world where in parts of Africa and India, I mean, there were some record breaking temperatures in India recently. It gets to the point where the human body can't exist in those sorts of temperatures. Isn't that right? So uh, the geographical... Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. Absolutely. I mean, you, you're going to have, um, and you probably led to an important point which is the, the the notion of climate refugees and that's something that uh, i think is very likely to be experienced in, in future not just from sea level rise where low-lying island states will will become underwater you know you think of places like um, tuvalu and vanuatu and pacific islands that are, are very low-lying these people are, are going to have to relocate as as the sea level rises over over the coming decades and as you say, the same is true in, in places that are already extremely hot. And uh, if they're going to get hotter, then it's going to lead to people needing to move. And uh, population increases by far at its most in Africa. Too. It's the continent in the world that is uh, expanding its population uh, at the fastest rate. So you're getting more people in the continent that's getting hotter and hotter. That's already got, uh, obviously, m many problems there. And that's a, it's a recipe for disaster in that sense, and it, it will lead to global crises, water shortages, famine, drought, and uh, people needing to be uh, relocated to other parts of the world for survival. There will be places that will be simply uh, too hot uh, to live in in future. I wonder, is there something about, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've read sort of maybe contradictory things about tipping points that uh, some scientists have predicted for example, that the uh, sort of permafrost, the melting of the permafrost might release methane, which might have a significant accelerating effect on the on already existing climate change. Um, so what do you think of those sorts of, the idea of tipping points? Are we in danger of breaching any of those, do you think? or? Yeah, I mean, that that's that's a kind of one of those million dollar questions. These are often referred to as the wild cards in the climate system. You know, there are things we know and there are things we don't know so well. We know, for example, if you raise CO2 levels, you're going to raise temperatures. That's that's just a matter of fact. But what we don't know is, is uh, as you say, things like permafrost thaw and the, the massive amounts of methane that get released. Um, I think it's still not completely known by any stretch of the imagination. How, how much uh, methane you could have released there and how much of an impact that could have on raising global temperatures. I mean, methane as a greenhouse gas is about 25 times more powerful than CO2 in, in raising temperature, uh, but it occurs in much smaller concentrations, which is why CO2 is more important. But if you had permafrost thaw and massive amounts of methane released, uh, that could begin to change a bit. And that could lead you into tipping points where you get into more and more dangerous levels of, of climate change. These are also referred to as, as positive feedback mechanisms because it's like a dominoes effect. You know, you, 
you warm the planet, it thaws permafrost, that releases methane, that warms the planet even further, which thaws even more methane, and it just keeps going and going in a, in a runaway cycle like that. The same is true of ice melt as well, because when, when ice melts, um, you know, ice is very reflective, it's white in color, it reflects solar radiation. So when you start to melt away that ice, it, it creates darker surfaces, which absorb more sunlight, and that warms the planet even more. And again, that's another cycle that, that kind of positive, positively reinforces itself. And it's these kind of mechanisms that, that are one of the, the wild cards, as, as I mentioned there, that we don't quite know uh, the extent to which these could tip things in different directions in the future. It could be that they, um, they make things a whole lot worse than we, we ever imagined. And there are some, um, there are some researchers that would prescribe to, to that way of thinking, maybe, that things could be more dangerous and more serious than, than any of the projections we've even made because of some of these things. Um, so it's just it's one of those we just don't know yet. And uh, we, I think in some ways we, we have to hope <laughs> that, that they're not going to be as bad as we think. But also, of course, it's a as you say, code red for humanity. It's a signal beyond any doubt that we need to take very serious and deep action to, to address this right now. You know? I mean, even without the hitting one of those tipping points, we're already on a pretty bad trajectory. So, I mean, I guess that's... We need to get the carbon dioxide emissions done. Obviously, there's certain amount of methane emissions that we can control in terms of, uh, you know, clearing forests for herds of cattle, for, for beef burgers and so forth. Um, you know, which produce uh, methane, but I guess that you know the carbon emissions are are the big one, really. So, and people talk about a you know a carbon budget. Uh, um, I wonder if you could maybe take us through that. There's an idea that we only have so much carbon that we can continue to emit before we we do breach some of these these barriers. Let's say. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's. That's right. Yeah. So carbon budget, just just like any budget, whether it's financial or otherwise, you've got a certain amount of something to work with. And in this case, we've emitted so much carbon already, and we have a finite amount left in, a, in order to reach a, a set temperature target. So if we want to, for example, contain things to within one and a half degrees, uh, then we've got a small amount of carbon left to work with uh, to emit before we hit that level. And that the best estimates in the recent IPCC report for that were somewhere between 300 and 900 gigatons of carbon is what we have left uh, to emit before we would hit that target. Now, just to give you some context for that, um, in 2019, globally, there were 38 gigatons of carbon emitted. So that means that, you know, if, if 38 was emitted in one year, and you have between 300 and 900 left before you hit that temperature target, you know, you can do the arithmetic on that pretty quickly. And, and it implies that it could be as little as a decade before you start uh, crossing into that one and a half degree temperature target. It could be further uh, because of some of the, the uncertainties around around all of this. But uh, that, that's pretty worrying when you think that we could already hit that level uh, within little over a decade. And Certainly, that's uh, that's something that is of, of deep concern. And the IPCC very clearly stated in the last report that unless we make deep reductions in carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases, then we are going to exceed one and a half degrees almost certainly, and and very possibly two degrees as well. Um, 
And the thing is, we simply don't know what our emissions are going to be in the future, which is why we, we turned a set of emission scenarios, you know, like a, a worst, the best in the middle kind of case scenario of, of what might happen. Even under the best case scenario of, of what our emissions will be like, um, the projections are that by the end of the century, uh, temperatures will be between at least one degree and 1.8 degrees warmer than pre-industrial. So that's um, serious enough in itself. But under the, the very worst case scenario, it's between 3.3 and 5.7 degrees. So you know, 5.7, that's huge. And again, that's a global average. So there'll be parts of the world that would be much more than that. And, and that, that's very, very serious. I mean, the last time, the last time temperatures were two and a half degrees warmer than pre-industrial was um, three, three million years ago. So um, it's a long time ago. Um, Okay. And, uh, you know, you're talking about seriously unprecedented temperature rises here and uh, within a geological context. And, and that's uh, something that is just kind of, it, it's hard to imagine at this moment. And the impacts of a rise like that would be, we would have, we would have a planet very unlike the one we know now if we, if we hit those kind of levels. So we simply need very sustained and, and deep reductions in CO2 and other greenhouse gases. Um, and of course, there's also the, the shining light of having um, the possibility of removing carbon from the atmosphere as well. It isn't just about decreasing our emissions, but can we also pull some of this out of the atmosphere and, uh, and uh, take some of it back, store it uh, in, in different places? And that's, uh, that's, there are big efforts towards that as well. Although I'm always a bit cautious about that uh, because I think sometimes that can be a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free to some of the big emitters. And I think really the thing we need to tackle beyond anything is to, to, to really ramp down those those emissions. That that should be the first and foremost priority, I think. So are you, are you we need to get working, we need to get on with it really, but uh, but are you, I mean, some of those uh, worst case scenarios are, are quite frightening. Um, are you optimistic that, that we there is a pathway to for us to go ahead and, and to get these emissions down and, and stabilize the situation? It's, it's, it's really difficult to know. Just, I think, uh, I think I'm an optimist by nature and I, I think, I think we have to be optimistic. Don't we? We have to have hope that, uh, that things will change. I mean, at the moment we're not on the right trajectory whatsoever. There's still, you know, I think it was Sir Keir Starmer there recently used the phrase, he said the worry nowadays isn't climate deniers, it's it's climate delayers. And, and that, I thought that was actually a very good quote and it's very true. It's it's people that, you know, the science is unequivocal now. It can't be disputed. I mean, to deny climate change now is like to deny that grass is green. You know, it is green. It doesn't matter what your opinion of that is. And, and the climate is changing and humans are largely responsible. Um, but it's... It's now the people that try to delay action. They're trying to kick the can down the road and, and delay things further and further. And and that's where the danger lies. It's trying to get uh, governments and international cooperation to try and um, incentivize behavior and action for, for individuals to, to change their, their ways and to try and um, reduce their carbon footprint pretty dramatically. I think the kind of optimism that I would have is that there are pledges from a lot of countries in place now to, to achieve net zero by a certain year. For example, the UK and Ireland both uh, pledge net zero by 2050, which is probably too late, uh, in, in all honesty. Other countries like Norway have pledged it by 2030. Um, 
And some countries have already achieved it, like Bhutan, for example, they're already net zero. It should be said that the reason some countries can do it quicker is because of their natural capital. You know, some countries have very dense forest, and that means that they have far more potential to store carbon in, in, the, in their natural uh, assets like that. I think Finland is another country they're aiming for net zero by 2035. They have the, they have the highest amount of uh, forest per capita in the world, uh, and certainly by far the most in Europe. And so that, that does help, of course, with, with drawing down carbon. So there are these pledges in place by different governments. It's just the feeling again is that it's a bit too slow. You know, 2050, that's nearly 30 years away. But by that stage, we could already have, you know, irreparable damage in, in many ecosystems and in, in many other aspects of society and the economy and the environment. And it's it's just, it's worrying from, from that point of view. But there are other there are other things to be maybe cheery and hopeful about. You know, renewable energy is picking up all the time. Um, in 2020, it was 28% of the, the world's electricity supply was powered by renewables. So, you know, we're nearly at a third of electricity supply coming from renewables. And it might surprise you, but China is leading the way on that as well. Uh, and in um, and I think that that is something to be encouraged about, but it still means that over 60% of energy is provided by uh, coal and gas uh, and oil. So that those fossil fuels are still very much leading the way when it comes to energy provision. And that's the thing that we, we dramatically need to change. We need to, we simply need to leave those in the ground if we're to have any hope of uh, driving down emissions. And that's, that's the bit that's so difficult to, to try and incentivize um, and you know, I think money still rules the world when it comes to so many of these things, and that's that's the the big danger there. Um, there are also um, carbon capture and storage facilities across the world. There's over eighteen of these facilities now that are uh, aiming to draw down carbon from the atmosphere. So there's some hope in that kind of thing. I heard in the radio the other day that the the first um, hybrid electric plane flew in the UK. I think from between Exeter and Newquay it flew and um, and that was successful and there's hope that that these kind of technologies will be rolled out uh, commercially you know over the next number of years we would hope to see the same when it comes to electric cars and hybrid cars and you know that these technologies need to needs to happen quicker it needs to become more affordable too i think that's the, there there are too many barriers to these things like i would love myself to own an electric car but it's you know as you probably know yourself, to try and shelve out the kind of money these things cost. It's it's not realistic for, for many people at the moment, and that's where governments need to prioritise these things to try and um, maybe provide subsidies to drive prices down so that it becomes more ubiquitous. I guess the, um, uh, the technology has been getting a lot cheaper, so... Again, hopefully, you know, reasons to be reason to be cheerful in that phrase. Um, uh, but yeah, as you've as you've said, we've still got our work cut out for us. So uh, I will be talking to a colleague in in uh, another school about um, the transition to clean power. But uh, in the meantime, thank you very much for giving us that great grounding in in some of the science and some of those. Some of the warnings and some of the encouragement that we need to roll up our sleeves and get on with it. So, Dr. Donovan, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, Morris. Many thanks to Dr. Donald Mullen of the School of Natural and Built Environment. Follow us on social media at QUB Engagement 
And for more on this series, visit our website, go.qub.ac.uk slash charter hyphen podcast. Or subscribe to Queen's University Belfast, the Charter Podcast, on all the main podcast platforms. <laughs>